probably noticed that I skipped over another chapter of Leviticus. I'm just doing it to see how much I can get away with. I just see what you guys will let me get away with, right? I skipped over chapter 17, and I chose to do so because, again, it deals largely with issues that we've already considered, namely issues relating to blood and especially the eating of blood, all of which, as we've seen before, points to the important purpose of blood, which really points to the blood of Christ, the only thing that can wash away sins. However, even though we did skip over that chapter, we must note that beginning in chapter 17, we start the fourth and final last major section of the book of Leviticus. This section is often referred to by scholars as the holiness code, the holiness code. As the name suggests, it deals very much with practical holiness in all areas of life. And while it does have some elements of the ceremonial law in it, which we'll see, nevertheless, in comparison with the rest of the book of Leviticus, the great burden of the holiness code is practical holiness and the moral law of God more than the rest of Leviticus, which deals by far more with the ceremonial law of God. The great burden, then, of this section, and what we want to keep in mind as we study it in the weeks to come, is that God's people are not merely to have a cleanness and purity of the ceremonial law, or we might say a mere outward cleanness and purity. What is most important to the Lord is that we keep the moral law as well. In fact, if you remember Christ's repeated criticism against the Pharisees was that they focused on the ceremonial to the neglect of the moral law. We might say, if they were in our congregation as we've been studying Leviticus, they've really loved the first parts of the book of Leviticus. This other stuff, not too big on that part, right? Give me the really mysterious religious stuff, right? Loving God, loving others, Showing mercy and kindness, oh, that wasn't so much their thing. You know why? Because that stuff's hard. It demands your heart, not just your outward obedience. However, according to Christ, by focusing on the ceremonial to the neglect of the moral, he said that they neglected, quote, the weightier matters of the law. And yet, brothers and sisters, don't we often find the same tendency within our own hearts as well? We are quick to obey those parts of God's law which are easiest for us to do. And then you know what we do? We pat ourselves in the back. Man, I am such a good keeper of laws, God. All the while neglecting the stuff that actually requires the heart, right? God does not give us that option to choose which of his commandments to to obey They are simply all to be obeyed. As Christ told the Pharisees, these, the moral laws, you ought to have done without neglecting the others, the ceremonial. Christ isn't saying, you know, that stuff doesn't matter. No, it was given by God for a certain time, and they were all important. God's law is God's law. It is all to be obeyed. And that's really the burden of this last and final section of Leviticus. So holy is Yahweh, the God who dwells amongst his people, that he will have them be holy in all of their life. They can't cordon off a section and say, well, this is enough holiness 
No, God says, I, I demand it all if I am to dwell amongst you. Well, today we are looking at chapter 18 in the Holiness Code, which deals primarily with sexual sin and sexual uncleanness. Just as people and preachers might avoid the book of Leviticus in general because it deals very plainly with things like awkward bodily functions, so often chapters, not just like this one, but especially this one, make people kind of avoid Leviticus and make it very, very challenging. Indeed, if chapter 15 with its bodily functions might be a bit embarrassing to go through with one another in public sermon, chapter 18 in many ways downright sickening in terms of the kinds of sins and perversions that are covered in it. Indeed, even as we go through them this afternoon, I'm not really going to be going into great specifics of the various kinds of sexual sins mentioned because of our younger listeners. We just, we just don't need to do that, right? Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, while we might wish to skip over such a chapter, the truth is, we can't afford to. We can't afford to skip over it because we find ourselves increasingly surrounded by a world which is ever more raging against God and His creation in pursuit of its own worship and in pursuit of satisfying its own lust. The world, as we've seen, increasingly demands more and more submission to its sexual ideology, more and more acceptance of its practices, and in terms of pressure, the pressure to submit, on the one hand, we've seen them ratcheting up, ratcheting up how they go after those who don't submit, who don't go along, while on the other hand, offering the world on a platter to those who do. That's pressure. We can't afford to skip a chapter like this because the sins listed in this chapter are so soul and life destroying, brothers and sisters. They are soul and heart and mind and family and marriage and life corrupting and destroying. These are the kinds of sins that a society that is <laughs> trying to destroy itself throws itself headlong into. And lastly, we can't afford to because perhaps nothing brings so much reproach upon the gospel of Christ. Nothing so saps the zeal, the strength, the witness the gospel assurance of Christians and the strength of the church today as sexual sin, brothers and sisters. We see the great importance of this topic if we simply consider where God has placed these laws in the holiness code itself. Some of the first thing, things that he discusses one scholar writes, The first place among these laws is given to the institution of marriage, the cornerstone of all human society. Any violation of the sacred character of marriage is deemed a heinous offense, calling down the punishment of heaven, both upon the offender and the society that condones the offense. You know, it's been a mantra. It's 
propaganda for decades and decades, before even I was born. And as soon as I say this, you will have heard this as well. It's been a mantra of the, the sexually progressive agenda that what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their own home is their business and theirs alone and no one else's. Have you ever heard that before? That's a wicked lie. It's not to say the government needs to be in our business. It is to say that while we definitely agree with the idea of privacy, so fundamental is the home and the family, and by virtue of that, the bedroom, that what takes place there, even if done privately and secretly, so radically affects what happens on the outside that it is the common concernment of all. We see that around us. And so we can't afford to skip over this chapter. We can't afford to not catechize our children today about such matters. Well, the way I'd like us to consider this chapter today is by considering it in the way that God gave it. You might say, oh, yeah, well, duh, pastor, right? What I mean by that is that God gave these laws in this chapter in a very specific format in order to really press upon Israel the seriousness and the grave nature of these laws so that their ears perk up and so that they obey, right? Perhaps you've heard of the idea that the medium is the message. The medium is the message. You ever heard that? If you ever want to look just like, just like really smart and culturally relevant, just like take a sip of your coffee and go like, well, the media is the message, you know what I mean? And we'll be like, whoa, that was so profound, right? The idea is that you communicate something not merely with the content of what you say, but the way in which you say it as well, right? That often communicates as well. Let me give you a bit biblical example. When Paul is in Jerusalem, he's in the temple area, and he has been seized by the Jews, and they have accused him of trying to defile the temple, and they're beating him up, and the Roman soldiers come, and they're gonna, they pull him out of the crowd, and he stands up to motion to speak to the crowd. Do you remember that? The content of what he says is an account of his life and his conversion to Christ. He begins by saying, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, etc., etc. That's the content. But the medium, we're told, by Luke that he delivered the content, was not in Greek, which they all would have known pretty much, nor was it in Latin, which the soldiers would have understood, but it is in what Luke calls the Hebrew language, the Hebrew language, most likely Aramaic, which is what the, that was their mother tongue at the time. Listen to the effect of this upon the crowd. Luke says, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Why? Because that was their mother tongue. By speaking that way, Paul just connected with them. He identified himself with one of them. They were arresting him and beating him up because they thought this is a man who's defiling the temple. 
He's the opposite of Judaism. Now he's speaking to us just like a Jew. He's saying he's one of us. What's going on? Paul has grabbed their attention by speaking to them in a certain way. That's the idea of the medium is the message. Well, in our chapter today, the medium is very much the message itself. God does not merely give the content of laws that forbid certain sexual deviant behavior, but rather sprinkled throughout the passage, and in the way that the whole thing is structured and organized, it is according to a certain format that they definitely would have recognized at the time. That format is a covenant. A covenant. As I've said before, covenants were somewhat standardized in the ancient Near East. They were a genre of literature or speech that people would have been familiar with, and that if certain things were said, their ears would perk up and go, oh, this is, this is a covenant. This is covenant language. Just as if I were to use certain phrases, you would go, oh, you're speaking in legalese, right? We call it like a legalese. Oh, that was a limerick that you just said. You know that because you're used to it. So it was with covenants in the ancient Near East, and we see in this chapter it has all the characteristics of a covenant. In fact, if you look at the notes section of your order of service, I've borrowed from Gordon Wenham's own outline of the covenantal structure of this passage. And as we'll see, there there, uh, is one verse in this chapter that is incredibly important in covenant theology. And I've always, un- I've always wanted to know, why did Paul pick that one verse from a cha- chapter about you know, forbidden sexual behavior? Well, if you understand that this is a covenant, and that by implication this is a miniature Mosaic covenant, you go, oh, that's why Paul chose this, right? We'll, we'll see that. But if you look, you can see it has a preamble, typically in which God names himself as the Lord of the covenant. He is the one making the covenant, so he introduces himself. Then there is typically some kind of historical retrospect in which God looks back and recounts his past goodnesses to the ones he's making the covenant with to enjoin them to obedience and faithfulness in the covenant. And then typically you have laws and commands with a section of blessings and curses and all of, those, all of those elements are in our own passage today. The point of it is to grab Israel's attention. God is saying, okay, I'm going to really tell you something important. Have you ever had someone say, uh, come here, take a seat. <laughs> There's something about ser- sitting down where we go like, whoa, this must be serious, right? That's kind of what God is doing here. Listen up. I'm going to tell you something you can't afford to miss, okay? And therefore, he tells them in covenant. For us today, then, that means that part of truly exegeting these laws is to consider them from the perspective of covenant. Not only because that's the form in which God gave them, but also because, guess what? We ourselves are in covenant, brothers and sisters, with our God, with the very same God. We are then to consider these laws through the framework and the the organization of that covenant and its blessings. And yet, as we'll see, 
we find ourselves in a greater covenant than they did. One that is more excellent, and as the author of Hebrews says, enacted on better promises. And as we'll see, therefore, we have greater covenantal reasons to obey and keep these laws, okay? Well, with that in mind, let's finally turn now to our text and consider four covenantal reasons why you and I ought to flee from sexual sin. Four covenantal reasons why we ought to flee from sexual sin. All sins in general, you could apply this to all sins, okay? But we want to focus on sexual sin today. We will see that we ought to do so first because of who our covenantal Lord is. Second, because of what He has done for us. Thirdly, because of the blessings offered in the covenant. And fourth and lastly, because of the covenantal curse, okay? Covenantal curse. Well, first, let's, let's see that we ought to flee from sin because of who our covenantal Lord is. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. And you remember, I said, there are certain things in this passage that to the ancient hearers, they would just go covenant, right? Just as you might if I were to say, you know, hereafter referred to as the corporation, you'd go, oh, that's legal language, right? Certain things in this just pop out in terms of covenantal language. And that last phrase of verse 2, I am the Lord your God, would have just popped out in terms of covenantal language for the original hearers. Typically... Whenever God gives something in covenant, whenever he pronounces some kind of covenantal command, covenantal blessing, or even covenantal curse, he often begins with that phrase. For example, just consider the Ten Commandments, the essence of the covenantal law. In both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, God begins by saying, you shall have no other gods before me. No. It doesn't start there. I am the Lord your God. By describing himself in this way, as both Lord, or Yahweh, Jehovah, and your God, the covenantal Lord is really giving us a twofold revelation and reminder of who he is. First, he says that he is the Lord, Yahweh the being one. By prefacing his commands with his divine name, he is here grounding his authority to give such commands ultimately in himself and his nature. He is the one who is. That's enough for you. (laughs) John Gill says that God here, quote, shows the right he had to enact and, and join such laws Since he is Yahweh, the being of beings, and from whom they receive their being. Oftentimes, brothers and sisters, when we want to express our authority, when we're communicating to someone, we often remind them of something about who we are, right? You might say, Excuse me, I am the parent and you are not, and therefore you will obey, right? 
You might have to do that as a boss. I'm sure Reuben does that in his office all the time for all kinds of people. I've never had to do that as a pastor to a congregant of my church, but one time I did have to tell someone, well, I am a pastor, I'm a minister of God, and I have studied this, and I'm telling you, you're wrong, right? We sometimes do that to really kind of flex our authority to tell them we have the authority to command or to say whatever we are saying. You know what God says to make the same point? I am. We have to say, I am this. I am that. I am a pastor. I am a parent. I am your boss. God says, I exist. I am who I am. I am the ancient of days. Of old I laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of my hands. They will perish, but I will remain. They will wear out like a garment. I will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But I am the same, and my years have no end. I am commands you. Thomas Watson says, By this great name, God sets forth his majesty. It's remarkable, brothers and sisters. You know what people do in Scripture when they are confronted with with a a fresh vision, a clear view of the majesty of God? They start confessing their sins and repenting. Isn't that amazing? They do so because they have come face to face with the covenantal lawgiver in all his grandeur, in all his majesty and power and glory and beauty, and they see how their great sin is such a great sin against such a great being. Job says, and that's exactly what God does in Job. (laughs) He kind of says, let me tell you a little about something about myself. Stand up like a man (laughs) and put your big boy pants on, and where were you when I did anything that I have done? And you know what God said, or what Job says when he's confronted with that majesty? I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Christian, if you would keep yourself from sexual sin, keep a clear view of the majesty of God. And yet our covenantal Lord does not merely say, I am the Lord, I am, I am Yahweh, but I am the Lord, your God. Thomas Watson continues that if by the first term God sets forth his majesty, here by these two little words, your God, he, quote, implies the sweetest relations. Sweetest relations. While we do sometimes emphasize our authority when trying to persuade or or exhort or, or move someone to do something or whatever we say, at other times we appeal to them by our nearness and the sweetness of relations. You might say in a very serious situation to a child, as your parent who loves you, who would give you the very heart from my own chest, I'm telling you for your own good, do not do this thing. That's not an appeal to authority. 
That's an appeal to your love. That's an appeal to your affection for them, your compassion, your pity. You are near, so much so that they are one. I love how in Spanish, you know, in English, they have funny nicknames for people they love. I love you, boo-boo bear. In Spanish, it's so much more romantic. Mi corazón, right? Mi vida. But it communicates the idea that the person you're talking to as, is, is as your own heart. They are as your own life. My life and my heart are so bound up in you that you are as my own heart. And God here says, obey me because you are my heart. I have love and affection for you. I am your God and you are my people. John Bunyan tells the story when he was imprisoned for many years. He would receive visits from his wife and his children. But eventually, whenever that time was done, they had to go home. He describes the emotional pain of this. He says, it was like tearing the tearing of my flesh from my bones. That's a sweetness of relation. The deeper, the nearer the relation, the deeper the love. God calls himself their God. His nearness, his heart, his affection, his compassion, his pity, his love. He says they are as his own heart. And he says, do not sin because of these things. I appeal to you by my own love. You are my heart. Flee from sexual sin. And yet here we see perhaps the first difference between ourselves and the Israel according to the flesh because of our two covenants. For Israel under the old covenant, their nearness to God was merely a typological nearness. Indeed, as we've seen, it was a nearness in many ways, but it was also a nearness categorized by distance. There were barriers to God. It was not so near. Our nearness in the new covenant is a true spiritual nearness. Indeed, a union with God our Father and Christ our heavenly bridegroom. How much more, therefore, brothers and sisters, ought we, ought we to obey these laws in light of the fact that he is truly our God and we are truly his people? Well, that is our covenantal Lord. Secondly, let us consider that we ought to flee from sexual sin, not just because of who our covenantal Lord is, but because of all that he has done for us. Continuing on in verse 3, It says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You might be wondering to yourself, okay, pastor, how does that speak about what he has done for us in the past? I admit to you, it's subtle, but I do think it's there in that he mentions Egypt. To be sure... On the one hand, God simply mentions the land of Egypt along with the land of Canaan because it was where they had lived and it was where they were going to live. And both of these places were full of wicked sexual practices that Israel was to avoid. Nevertheless, given, given the covenantal format of this whole passage, I think the mention of Egypt 
especially so closely after the phrase, I am the Lord your God, probably serves as a covenantal historical reminder of God's past goodnesses. In biblical covenants or covenantal material, covenantal law or, or passages like that, as I said, God will often recount the history of his past goodnesses and mercies of those he is entering into a covenant with or who he's bestowing some blessing upon, ultimately to move them to faithfulness out of gratitude. For example, in 2 Samuel 7, when God makes his covenant with David, he begins by saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And then he says, and I will make for you a great name. You see, his past dealings with David go all before the blessing he's about to give to remind David of all the goodness that God has shown him that David would be obedient out of gratitude. Again, simply consider the preface of the Ten Commandments. Not only does it say, I am the Lord your God, but I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall therefore have no other gods before me. And so I think the mention of Egypt is on the one hand a very practical thing because of their sexual practices and Israel having lived there. But still on the other hand, I think it probably serves as a subtle reminder of God's past goodnesses so that they'd obey out of gratitude. Israel was a place, Israel, Egypt was a place of misery for Israel. Several times in the Old Testament, God likens Israel's bondage in Egypt to being caught in an iron furnace. Iron furnace. That goes together with another idea you see in the Old Testament. They'll refer to it as the furnace of affliction. It's bad. <laughs> it's a furnace, right? It was a place of physical agony and emotional despair. Their masters were cruel and heartless. Their existence was to toil under the hot sun until they died. And they saw their babies cast into the water where they would drown or be eaten by crocodiles. It was a furnace of affliction. And yet God comes. He owns them as his own. He brings them out with powerful signs and wonders. He sets them free. He clothes them with the clothes and all the riches and jewelry of their former oppressors. And they are free men now. They have freedom. And God's rescuing them was not due to anything that Israel had done or anything that they were, but rather out of his sheer faithfulness to his own covenantal promises to their forefathers. Moses says in Deuteronomy 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. In light of such a deliverance, as the world had never, never seen before, how could they not but obey the word of their covenantal Lord, the one who redeemed and loved them? It would be the height of ingratitude, a total disregard for mercies received, made worse by the fact that these practices were the practices of Egypt. It was as if they were to say, God, I'm really happy you rescued me because I didn't so much like the slavery part of Egypt, but all the sinfulness of Egypt, that I can still do with. In fact, if I wasn't a slave, God, you probably could have just left me there. For us, brothers and sisters, when we fall into sexual sin, we are, as it were, putting the very chains back on that Christ's blood set us free from. God, I really like the forgiveness part of the gospel and the power of Christ's blood. I really like that part. Repenting of my sin? Oh, not so much. It's interesting Not only does God give historical reminders of his past faithfulness when making a covenant, but also when pronouncing covenantal discipline. And I think he does so to highlight how great an act of ingratitude it was. For example, just a few chapters after God recounted all of his past faithfulness to David as he made a covenant with him, Just five chapters later, when David sins with Bathsheba and murders Uriah the Hittite, God again recounts his past goodnesses to David, not so much to encourage him to obey out of gratitude, but to confront his great ingratitude in committing these sins. God says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the whole house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? To act ungratefully after receiving such a blessing and covenant with God? It's called there the despising of the word of God. Christian, do not despise the word of your God. Let your heart rather be moved with a deep gratitude for his many and his great and his sweet kindnesses to you. Just as with the majesty of God, if you keep those in mind, sexual sin will lose its power over you. You will say, as Joseph said when he fled from sexual sin, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I do it against such a God if you keep those in view? 
Thirdly, we ought to obey our covenantal Lord because He rewards obedience with life and blessing. It says in verse 4, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now that little part of the last part of verse 5, if a person does them, he shall live by them, is actually incredibly important theologically in several different areas. It's really important in terms of covenant theology. It's really important, according to Paul, in terms of the doctrine of justification and salvation apart from works. It's really, really important. You might think like, really, that verse we just... Yeah, and it's actually important throughout the Old Testament, though we don't have time to go in that today. Now, in that verse, we do see a really big difference between our covenant and the Mosaic covenant, which we will have to expound upon because it is a reason for even greater obedience on our part. Before we consider that, however, just consider the fact that God is here urging Israel to obedience. Not because he's a killjoy. Not because God is opposed to pleasure. Not because God is even opposed to sexual pleasure. He created it. Rather, God is urging Israel to obedience because obedience leads to life in a certain sense. And I think that that is especially especially true in terms of sexual ethics. You know, sometimes, brothers and sisters, I look at my friends of my generation that I went to high school with. I, I see them on Facebook. A ton of them are not married. A ton of them are not married. They may be dating with someone. They may even be living with them, but they're not married. Even more than that, most of them do not have kids on purpose. They don't have kids. Maybe they have a pet, which they love as like their kid, but they don't have kids. And brothers and sisters, I really feel bad for them. I I don't mean that in some kind of like condescending way. I can see them all sitting here being like, yeah, okay, whatever. I look at my wife, the beauty of marriage. I look at my babies, and I think, you don't have any of this. This is the richness. This is the fullness of my life. Yes, we don't sleep. Well, actually, I sleep a lot in comparison to Annika. And yes, we argue at times. And yes, there's times when there's conflict. And it's hard when you're joined together at the hip with other sinners. But to not have that, I just pity them. I pity them because they look at marriage and kids and they go, oh, thank, thank the Lord I don't have kids. And I just go, I feel so sad for you because that is such the richness of life. These laws in this chapter, brothers and sisters, are meant to protect that. They're meant to nurture. They're they're offensive protection around marriage and the family. It's interesting that sexual sin in Scripture is often said to be the way of death. Way of death. For example, in Proverbs 5, The father warns his son of the adulterous woman. He says, 
her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Oh, now, O oh sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of the foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. That's the path of sexual sin, according to Scripture. And I don't really think it's being overly hyperbolic there. I, I don't really think it's like, okay, well, I guess you could apply that to all sins in a lot of ways. Kind of. But that's especially true of sexual sin. It so hits at the foundation of human life. It attacks the marriage and the family. It attacks your household. It attacks your closest loves, your hearts that are the nearest to you. And so I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that sexual sin especially destroys human life, just undoes the foundation. God tells his people here, if you would love life, rich life, flee from sexual sin. I like how the father says, don't even go near her door. Don't even go there because you're going to see her. She's going to bat her eyes at you. Not even worth it. Do not even go near her door. That's the way of death. And yet, as I said, Paul does see a fundamental difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. And it's one of those differences which I said at the beginning makes our covenant built upon better promises. For example, turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 5. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. <clears throat> Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's a direct quote of Leviticus 18.5. The person who does them shall live by them. Notice Paul says that in that little verse, it describes what he calls the righteousness that is based on the law. What he means by that is that under the Mosaic Covenant, although God redeemed Israel not because of anything in them or anything that they had done, yet abiding in the land, their tenancy in the rich, good land of life was based on their obedience. The one who does them shall live and have life in the land. This is why we say that the law says, do this and live. Do this and live. It is the righteous one, the one who does the law, who shall have life. According to Paul, that's the essence of the Mosaic Covenant. This is why I say many times, I think it's a typological covenant of works. The essence of the New Covenant 
is much different than that. In fact, we might say it's the opposite. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. Galatians 3, 11 through 12. <clears throat> now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Now that's a quote of Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. And according to Paul, that is the essence of the covenant of grace. But he continues in verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Leviticus 18.5. This, brothers and sisters, is nothing more than the difference between the law and the gospel. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, Christ has done all. Receive his life by faith. Their motivation was that if they kept these laws not only would they remain in the good land of Canaan, but they would have a rich, blessed life. Our motivation under the gospel is that Christ came to do what we could not do, fulfilled the law, merited eternal life, not life in the land of Canaan, but eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Brothers and sisters, how much more motivation do we have? The law says, obey, and if you do, you'll live. The gospel says, you live because of Christ, therefore obey. That's a far greater motivation. According to John Owen, if you really want to conquer lust, if you really want to conquer it, you must fight it with gospel motivations and not just law motivations. In fact, he says, it is only those who are caught in deep, deep sin, who are owned by their lust, all they can fight it with is the law. He says, if a man be so under the power of his lust that he hath nothing but law to oppose it, if he cannot fight against it with gospel weapons, but deals with it altogether with hell and judgment, which are the proper arms of the law, it is most evident that sin hath possessed itself of his will and affections. By contrast, he says, those who are Christ's and are acted in their obedience upon gospel principles have the death of Christ the love of God, the detestable nature of sin, the preciousness of communion with God to oppose any seduction of sin. Christian, you are not come to Mount Sinai. You are come to Mount Zion. Fight your sin with gospel motivations, not merely those of the law. The law has its place. But it is only gospel motivations, gospel weapons that will kill sin. If you fight lust with gospel weapons, as Owen says, you will live to see thy lust dead at thy feet. 
Fourth and lastly, we are to flee from sexual sin because of the covenantal threatenings, covenantal curse. Look with me all the way down at verse 24 of Leviticus 18. I said I'm not really going to go into the details with all these sexual sins themselves. To summarize briefly, I would say they are sins of consanguinity, what we'd call incest, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality. The only sin in the list that is not actually a sexual sin per se is verse 21. It says, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Uh, that refers to the child sacrifice in the worship of the Ammonite God of Molech, or sometimes he's called Milcom. Um, and actually, there, there's even archaeological evidence to support this that was found uh, in the city of Amman. Amman is the capital of modern-day Jordan, and it's, it gets its name because that's where the Ammonites used to live, and, and this is confirmed that child sacrifice was something they did. As far as why it's here in a chapter exclusively about sexual sins, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it probably has to do with the fact that this wicked sin of child sacrifice, just like sexual sin, so attacks the foundation of the family. I think that, that probably makes sense. The other thing I will say about the sins mentioned here before moving on is that the text is very plain as to their meaning. It's not mysterious what is meant here. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Straightforward. I say that to you because there are all kinds of wolves in sheep's clothing who do all kinds of exegetical historical gymnastics. If we were judges, they would get tens for the, the gymnastics they do to tell you this is not a condemnation of homosexuality. It really is. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever met someone who tries to gaslight you so much to your face. No, that's not what I was doing. And you're like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills right now, right? That's exactly what they, what they do with this. It's straightforward and it's clear. Don't, don't be deceived by them. Moving on to verse 24. We see finally here that God moves them to obedience by pointing to his covenantal threatenings. He says in verse 24, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who does them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable practices that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. This last part of the chapter 
really makes my heart heavy because it is clear that the punishments spoken of here are not merely applied to God's own covenantal people. In fact, that's kind of the point that God is trying to make. He has done this to other nations before. In fact, the nation that was there before them. We see, in fact, in the Old Testament quite often, many of the prophets that God sends, that God sent were sent to other nations to prophesy against them. Think of Jonah. He went to Nineveh, a people who were not in covenant with God. God told him, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. I think of our own nation, and I read this passage, and my heart just sinks. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow, and God reminds his people here that if they do not keep his commandments, he shall vomit them out. For us as the church, brothers and sisters, part of this can even be said to be true of us in a certain sense. If we abide in sexual sin and do not repent, God will vomit us out in the sense of fatherly discipline. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Christ uses this very metaphor of vomiting when he warns the church of Laodicea, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's vomit is what it means in Greek. And yet, the gospel motivation for us, brothers and sisters, is another huge difference between our covenant and the Mosaic covenant. In verses 24 through 30 of Leviticus 18, when God warns his people, he warns them with the covenantal curse. If the first part, Leviticus 18, 5 says, do this and live, we could say 24 through 30 says, don't do this and die. In fact, if you notice, there's a similarity there. He says, I just noticed that right now, verse 29 the persons who do them shall be cut off. Beforehand, the one who does them shall live by them. Here, the person who, do, uh, who commits these sins shall be cut off. Do this and live. Don't do this and die. We saw on the one hand that the gospel is different from the law because whereas the, the law says, do this and live, the gospel says, Christ did, and therefore you live. Here, we could say if the law says, don't do this and you shall die, the gospel says, don't do this, because Christ already died for you. Christ bore the curse for your sins. In our salvation, not only has Christ merited life, but he bore death for us. In fact, if we continue on reading where we left off in Galatians 3, Paul says again, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
Christian, Christ died for all your sins, but for sexual sin as well. For every glance at pornography on the internet, Christ bore more wrath upon the cross. That was the price of your redemption. How much more reason do you have to flee from sin than they did at Sinai? In conclusion, brothers and sisters, flee from sexual sin. Flee because of who your covenantal Lord is. The great I am commands you. And he is your God. You are his heart. He loves you. I like how it says in the King James, bowels of mercy. Because of the bowels of mercy he has for you, flee from sin. Flee from sin because Christ has merited you life. And sexual sin is death. Abide in life. Flee from it because Christ died for it on the cross. To any here today who do not know Christ, perhaps even some who themselves find themselves in bondage to sexual sin today, on the one hand, I pray that you would take heed to the great seriousness. It will ruin your life. It will ruin your marriage. It will ruin your family. It will destroy you. But know that Christ came to save sinners, even those who find themselves in the bondage of sexual sin. And he comes in by the power of his spirit, and just as he broke the chains of Israelites in Egypt, he can break the chains even of sexual sin, which you may have tried to fight for years and never been freed of. He forgive you, wash away your guilt, the shame, the uncleanness of sexual sin. Something about sexual sin that is particularly marked by uncleanness. We see that in all the names that God gives for the various kinds of things, abominations, perversions, uncleanness, all that, the blood of Christ can wash away from you, wash away the guilt of your conscience. Here's what you do. The law says, do this and live. Too bad. Not an option for you. You can't do it. Here's the good news. The gospel says, I have done everything. Simply believe and receive by faith, and I will set you free. And he's been doing it for thousands of years, and he will do it for you today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the betterness of our covenant in Jesus Christ. Oh God, there was nothing in us that you would choose us. There was nothing moral or spiritual about us. We were chosen from the same lump of clay. But in your mercy in Christ, you cast your electing love upon us. You redeemed us and washed us and justified and sanctified us. Father, I pray that you would give us a big view of your majesty today. That you would give us a big view of what you have done for us, that our hearts might be floored with gratitude. And that you'd give us a big view 
of the price that Christ paid to set us free. We pray all this in Christ's name.